Matthew, the gospel according to Matthew, it's chapter 16, starting at verse 13, it's page 822 if you're using that blue Bible in the pew there. So Jesus asks a couple of questions, and once he gets an answer, notice where he goes. So starting at verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, Simon son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, on the rock-solid recognition of what you have confessed, that I'm the Messiah and the Son of the living God, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ, the Messiah. Well, now we turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. It's page 373 in that blue Bible. You'll want to keep that Bible open there to this passage as we continue our series through First and Second Chronicles, Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. And now we hear looking at the son of Jehoshaphat, that pious knucklehead, Jehoshaphat. Now we look at his son, Jehoram, starting in verse 1. Jehoshaphat slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Jehoram, his son, reigned in his place. He had brothers, the sons of Jehoshaphat, Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariah, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Israel. Their father gave them great gifts of silver and gold, valuable possessions together with fortified cities in Judah. But he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was the firstborn. When Jehoram had ascended the throne of his father and was established, he killed all his brothers with the sword and also some of the princes of Israel. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. That's the northern and progressive apostate portion of God's people. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh, in the sight of the Lord. Yet Yahweh the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David because of the covenant that he had made with David. And since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. In his days, Jehoram's days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah and set up a king of their own. Then Jehoram passed over with his commanders and all his chariots. And he rose by night and struck the Edomites who had surrounded him and his chariot, command, and his chariot commanders. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day. At, the same, at that time, Libna also revolted from his rule because... He had forsaken the Lord. He had forsaken Yahweh, the God of his fathers. 
Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. And a letter came to him from Elijah the prophet saying, Thus says Yahweh, the Lord, the God of David, your father, because you have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father, or in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but have walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and have enticed Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom, as the house of Ahab led Israel into whoredom, and also you have killed your brothers of your father's house, who were better than you. Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, will bring a great plague on your people, your children, your wives, and all your possessions, and you yourself will have a severe sickness with the disease of your bowels until your bowels come out because of the disease day by day. And Yahweh, the Lord, stirred up against Jehoram the anger of the Philistines and of the Arabians who were near the Ethiopians. And they came up against Judah and invaded it and carried away all the possessions they found that belonged to the king's house and also his sons and his wives so that no son was left to him except Jehoaz, his youngest son. And after all this, Yahweh, the Lord, struck him in his bowels with an incurable disease. In the course of time, at the end of two years, his bowels came out because of the disease and he died in great agony. His people made no fire in his honor like the fires made by his father, for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he began to reign and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he departed with no one's regret. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of the kings. What I've read to you from the Gospel according to Matthew, what I've read to you from 2 Chronicles 21, my friends, it is the corrective, instructive, but it is also the enlivening and life-giving Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O gracious God, whose graciousness is unstoppable in spite of our sin and stupidity, please lead us through this episode. Instruct us, reclaim us, revive us, reform us. And keep us ever returning to you. Amen. You may be seated. So if you're visiting, there's sermon notes on the back of the worship guide with lots of space to write notes. There's some questions at the end for our care groups when they meet. Um, you know, consequences. Consequences. You know what those are, right? I've just been reading a book called Hell's Highway. It's about the market garden, Operation Market Garden, which was what liberated Holland at the end of, uh, towards the end of World War II. And there's all these details about the flights in where they went in and took airborne, the airborne uh, troops 101 and the 82nd in and dropped them. But there's all these gliders that were attached to these planes. And so there were consequences to cargo straps. Because they had jeeps, they had artillery, they had ammo, and if you didn't strap it down just right in the glider, the consequence would have been that there would have been shifting of weight somewhere in the flight as the glider was being towed. There are several accounts of this where the glider is being towed and the weight shifting would flip the glider and everyone would perish in the glider. There were consequences. You know, on our better days... We all know that there will be consequences to our actions. And we also recognize that there is that law of unintended consequences. That's why we have 
Uh, we never hold any legislation that we see voted in as if it is going to save the world because we know there are unintended consequences and usually it's the next session of legislatures passing legislation to fix what that one screwed up, you know? There's a law of unintended consequences. We realize that on our good days. But most of the time, we never think, never think of consequences. We never think how this action may actually impact everyone at work or how this decision may actually impact my family for three generations or whatever. We never think about consequences. And so stories like the one we're looking at now, along with all the rest of these, give us time to slow down, stop, reflect, reconsider. And sometimes they actually offer us opportunities to turn things around, to actually consider the consequences before it's too late and to change direction. And so keep consequences in mind as you work out, work, as we work our way through Jehoram's life. And we begin with his dastardly deeds. Yes, that's okay for me to use that word in church. We begin with his dastardly deeds. And it's really verses 1 through 7, then again in 10 and 11. Now, we got to step back just a minute, minute, a minute, a minute. The godly legacy of Jehoshaphat, of his daddy, will linger for decades. You can't miss it when later on in verse 12, when Elijah sends this letter and he uses Jehoshaphat's lifestyle as a standard for Jehoram's failure. You have not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, your father. And it will come out again in chapter 22, verse 12, which you'll hear, or verse 9, which you'll hear about next week where again Jehoshaphat's godly legacy lingers long after he's gone. That's great. And that's good. It's encouraging. But also the consequences of Jehoshaphat's knuckleheadedness will ripple on into the next generations. It will definitely impact the next two kings, his son and his grandson. First off, notice that instead of placing the best equipped son on the throne, Jehoshaphat places Jehoram, his firstborn. We know they were better equipped because God will say in the letter through Elijah, you killed your brothers who were better than you, right? So what does Jehoshaphat do? It says when you get there to verse, um, uh, verse 3, that he gave the kingdom to Jehoram because he was his firstborn. It was about privilege. It was about um, uh, standing in that sense. It wasn't about qualification. And what's intriguing to me is that we look at this and we go, didn't Jehoshaphat know that his son might not be a good fit, may not actually have been a good king? He probably did know. But his son was the firstborn. And so he gave him that honorable position without working off of biblical principle. Now we think, we look at this and we go, well, that would never happen in our day. It happens all the stinking time. Guys start colleges, for example, or universities, and they are people of some integrity, of some good integrity. But then they die and they move off the scene and everybody clamors for their sons or daughters, some, some cases, to actually be elevated to college or university president, and all of a sudden it becomes clear, oh, that son doesn't have any integrity. We do it all the time. And so I understand what Josh Vett did, but it was a knuckleheaded decision, and it was going to have complications and implications. But secondly, Jehoshaphat sets the path for Jehoram that he will walk 
He arranges Jehoram's marriage and he arranges it with Ahab's daughter, an ungodly woman of an ungodly king. So it's verse 6. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done for the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now I have to make a little correction here for just a minute. For years, I always thought it was Jehoshaphat that married Ahab's daughter because of chapter 18, that's the way the wording could be implied, and even in the Hebrew. But then there's never a daughter mentioned, a daughter of Ahab mentioned in Jehoshaphat's life. It dawned on me this week as I was working back through this passage, no, no, here was the marriage alliance he made. He married his son into Ahab's family line. He actually arranged the marriage for Jehoram to marry an ungodly daughter of an ungodly king, King Ahab. That's what happened here. Now, what kind of a woman might she be? Well, you're going to find out next week. But let me try to give you some context. She's the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. Jezebel was not the epitome of godliness, if you know what I mean. And this gal is her mama's daughter. So notice that. And so Jehoshaphat sets the path for Jehoram to walk and he will walk down that path and it will have consequences for years to come. Fathers, brothers, take note. You often set the path for your kids and for your grandkids. Now listen, it's not automatic and it's not mechanical. I have seen too many, I have seen too many adult kids, both in experience and in Scripture, who revolt from the godly ways of their godly parents when they grow up. So this is not automatic and mechanical. But it's here reminding us that in general it is true, you and I, we set the path for those coming after us, our children and grandchildren. But my friends, notice also the principle that if you have any say-so in whom you marry, or or who you marry your adult children to, then you need to remember, Christians are only to marry Christians. That's all through Scripture, and here you have a sense of it. In fact, this gets down to what Pastor West was really working at, getting at two weeks ago. Inside of that Christian context, the committed to Jesus should marry the committed to Jesus. In other words, you don't run off to a progressive, liberal, faith-denying denomination to find a wife for your son or the other way around. Now, I'm not saying there aren't godly people in some of those denominations. There are. I know some. They are the rear guard. They intentionally stay there to be a rear guard. But you don't go run off over there. I can imagine Jehoshaphat's thinking was something like this. Well, Ahab's in the covenant. He's one of the people of Israel. His kids are covenant kids. I mean, I know his mom's not the most savory gal in town, but they're in the covenant. So he probably rationalized in his head this marriage in this way. But what he did is he took his son and he committed him to an ungodly daughter of an ungodly king. If you have any control and say so, Christians marry Christians committed to Jesus. Mary committed to Jesus. And so Jehoshaphat's unrighteous decision will impact the next few generations, opening the door 
to rotten Ahab's influence on the southern realm of God's kingdom. But also mothers and sisters. I want you to notice the role that you play in godliness or ungodliness impacting your husbands, your kids, and others. Listen, I know that being a mama or a wife is fraught with all kinds of distress and doubt and self-questioning and all those things. And guilt, if you're a parent, especially guilt. Right? I know that. I'm not trying to heap any on here. But do you not find it interesting that God took the time to make sure that this statement was in here? Jehoram followed this ungodly way because his wife, for his wife, was the daughter of Ahab. And you'll notice it when you get to next week, and you will notice the detrimental effect she has on her kids and grandkids. Mothers and sisters, notice the role that you play in godliness or ungodliness, impacting your husbands, your kids, your grandkids. And so all of this has set the foundation for Jehoram's dastardly deeds. Jehoshaphat making poor decisions again. And part of those poor decisions is he marries his son to the ungodly daughter of an ungodly king. And she wants to lead him astray too. All of this sets the foundation for Jehoram's dastardly deeds. And so once Jehoram is in power and established, he does what every Middle Eastern monarch did in his day. He acted like the world around him. What did he do? He committed fratricide. He killed all of his brothers. Why would he do that? So there's no competition. There's no alternative political movement. No, no, he kills all competition. He even gets down to killing any of the leaders, the princes of, of, of Judah, who might obstruct his ungodly direction. He tries to get rid of all competition and obstruction. But also notice in verse 10, he forsakes the God of his father. He forsakes, that means the God who rescued his father and the people of God just recently. He forsakes the God who rescued his people even from the the house of bondage in the land of Egypt. He forsakes the God who rescued his people, the God who promised in 2 Chronicles 7.14 that he stands ready to hear, forgive, and heal. He forsakes the God of his father. And then he leads, he leads the southern realm of God's kingdom astray. That's what it says when you get to verse 11. Moreover, he made high places in the hill country of Judah and led the inhabitants of Jerusalem into whoredom and made Judah go astray. He leads them astray. Now, he didn't necessarily force them. He didn't make it a a legal mandate, you must do these things. But it clearly is he's leading from the front... In fact, when God, through the prophet Elijah, characterizes what Jehoram did, he says, you enticed the people of Judah to go astray. I imagine probably what that means is things like he probably gave them tax breaks if they would go his way. Probably some subsidizations from the treasury if they would go his way. He enticed them away from the Lord. He didn't force them, he enticed them. And notice what God calls this action. He calls it whoredom. It's actually mentioned three times. Verse 11 once, verse 12 twice. Whoredom. They prostituted themselves in these actions. My friends, I want you to notice that God is so committed to his people. God so loves his people so deeply. And has done so much for his people. 
that for us to turn to other salvations and to turn to other success givers is equal to whoredom. We're prostituting ourselves. I said it the other day, I'm going to say it again. God is not into coexist. God is not into spiritual multiculturalism inside of His kingdom. It's whoredom. And so Jehoram's dastardly deeds have calamitous consequences. It's basically the rest of chapter 21, the calamitous consequences. The calamitous consequences of Jehoram's dastardly deeds, I've given you five of them. They're all losses. He's a loser. Every one of these consequences is a loss. He's a loser. And everybody loses who's affiliated with him. First off, he loses power. Verse 10, 8 through 10 and verse 16 and 17. He loses power to maintain the kingdom. He loses his ability to retain Edom and Libna as part of God's realm. That's interesting. He loses the ability to keep them in the kingdom boundaries. And he loses the power to protect himself. He can no longer protect himself. He loses the power to protect God's people. That's verse 16 and 17. And this probably gets really, really close to us, this next part. He even loses the power to protect his own wives, his own family. And he loses the power to protect his children. The calamitous consequence of Jehoram's dastardly deeds. Number one, he loses power. He loses many of his family and his children, as it says in verse 17, his sons and wives, so that no one was left to him except Jehoaz, his youngest son. Jehoram loses power. And then he loses integrity. It's verse 11, pretty obvious there. He loses integrity because he pilots the way, he pilots the way to turn everyone from Yahweh. Now think about that for a minute. Who is, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh? I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Who is Yahweh? He is the life-giving Liberty-giving God. And if you turn away from the one who gives life and gives liberty, what have you just opened yourself up to? That which snuffs out life and steals liberty. And look at the rest of the story. Life is lost and liberty is lost. When you turn away from the life-giving, liberty-giving Lord, you're only left with the life-snuffing, liberty-stealing gods and lifestyles of our world. He's this loss of integrity. And Jehoram loses his integrity, but then he goes on and loses his comfort. It's verses 12 through 15. It's that letter the Lord sends through Elijah. Elijah, who was ministering, who was actually the, a prophet during the reign of King Ahab and Jezebel. You may remember the story from 1 Kings 16, 17, 18 and beyond. Right? And so Elijah actually sends... Jehoram, a letter. And so God speaks to Jehoram by way of a written word, a written letter through the prophet Elijah. And it basically comes into two parts. Verse 12 and 13, because you have not, because you've not stuck with me, you've not been faithful, because you have, have pursued these other ways, these alternative spiritualities... 
Verse 14 and 15, Behold, Yahweh, the Lord, will do these things. You'll be diseased in your kingdom, and you'll be diseased in your bowels. Which is exactly where the rest of chapter 21 goes. It's exactly what happens. But notice, my friends, that God speaks, and it's rigorous. He speaks with rigor. And it comes in a written word. But why is there, why does, what is God's rigor meant to bring about? God's restoration. God's rigor is meant to bring God's restoration. If, if the good Lord couldn't wait to see Jehoram roast and fry and, 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 and be burned to smithereens, he wouldn't have sent him a letter. He's giving him a chance to turn around because God's rigor is meant to bring restoration. But what happens if we refuse God's restoration? What's left to us? Only his rigor. Thank you. Only his rigor. That's the gospel. What are you talking about, Mike? Anybody ever heard John 3, verse 35 and 36? The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. God's rigor is meant to bring restoration, but if we reject and ignore God's restoration, all that is left to us is His rigor. And that's how this all plays out the rest of the story. And so what the reliable God says to Elijah the prophet, the reliable God does, verse 16 and 17, and then verse 18 and 19. So Jehoram loses comfort. He loses comfort because he has rejected the one who has the door open for him, who has given him and, and provides the comfort. He has rejected God's health-giving prescription. You will notice that 2 Chronicles 7.14, none of the phrases come up in Jehoram's story. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from the wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. Notice there's no humility, there's no praying, there's no seeking God's face, and there's no turning from their wicked way. Jehoram is completely rejecting and ignoring even God's health-giving prescription. And when you reject a health-giving prescription, what does that mean you're embracing? Lack of health, at least, right? That's what's going on here. And so he loses comfort. The more he is, there's this loss of health. And it's verse 18 to the first part of verse 19. Now... This whole bowel disease that he has, it's very, very, uh, is, this is a very personal story to me. You know I have chronic ulcerative colitis, right? And I sometimes wonder, and I don't want to get into the gory details, but I sometimes wonder what my forebears just 120 years ago, what their lives must have been like with what I have. It's an intestinal disease. What would their life have been like? There are some who none of our medicines help them, and so I know what their lives are like, and it's miserable. And so I, I look at Jehoram, and I go, oh my goodness, I hurt. Every time I read this passage, my stomach hurts, okay? It hurts. 
Now, I want to say this up front. I want to bring this out and say this up front. Friends, clearly, not all painful sicknesses are a result of personal sinfulness. Not all painful sicknesses are a result of personal sinfulness. We need to get that out of our heads. You got it? We need to get that out of our heads. Just because somebody's sick does not mean they sinned. And don't let that ever come out of your mouth or even surface in your head. Not all painful sicknesses are a result of personal sin. But there are times when our rebellious actions do bring a loss of health. You notice it here, we're told specifically that his rebellious action brought about his loss of health and it's specifically stated. I know God doesn't talk to me like that, so I don't know if anybody else's sickness is that way, right? You know what I'm saying? But God tells us here specifically. And I think you can take the principle and recognize sometimes our rebellious actions do bring a loss of health. Our rebellious actions can bring the loss of our mental health. At times, our rebellious actions can bring the loss of our own physical health. At times, and our rebellious actions can bring the loss of relational health. That can go on for generations sometimes. And so Jehoram loses health. He's a loser. Lastly, he loses legacy. There's a loss of legacy. And it's verse 19 and 20. After two years of miserable death come these two sentences, one in verse 19 and one in verse 20. There in verse 19, his people made no fire in his honor like the fires made for his fathers. Here was a man who had no honor. He had no honor and he received no honors in his death. He lost his legacy. But probably the one that has bugged me to death is the one in 20. And he departed with no one's regrets. He departed with no one's regret. Now allow it to sink in a bit. His legacy has been shot all to smithereens and pieces. So much so that when he dies and was out of the way, there was this communal sigh of relief. Glad that's over. Now stop a moment and ponder then, why were those words recorded? He departed with no one's regret. Why are those words recorded? Because you can hear them. And while you and I have breath to breathe and time to hear this divine assessment, that means those words give us an opportunity to reflect on our own lives and make some corrections in our own lives. I mean, which would you prefer? God's assessment of Jehoshaphat, his heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. For the assessment of those who lived around Jehoram, and nobody regretted that she died or he died. Which of those would you prefer? And so if you can hear me, if you can hear me right now, then that means there's hope. You heard those words and it gives you an opportunity to think those through and How will I go out? Because we're all going to go. I know you probably don't know that. Some of you don't. Right? There's 100% mortality rate. I don't know if you knew that. We're all going out. How do you want to go out? She departed to no one's regret. He departed to no one's regret. 
Or his or her heart was courageous in the ways of the Lord. Hearing those words and the fact that you get to hear them means you have an opportunity to change some direction. And so Jehoram's dastardly deeds brought about calamitous consequences. And notice that the calamitous consequences not only harmed Jehoram, but they also brought great harm to the kingdom, to God's people, but they even brought great harm to his own family. He lost all of his wives but the one, the ungodly one. And he lost all of his sons but one. It brought great harm, great harm to anyone who was connected to him. Dear friends, we need to heed this. Instead of heeding those teeny little syrupy voices in our heads that say to us, oh, you know, no one else is going to get hurt by what you're about to do. It's okay, go do it. Let Jehoram haunt you. There are consequences to your actions. Sometimes those consequences go on multi-generationally. Now we could stop right here. But I skipped a verse. And I'm going to bring it in now at the end. Because I'm hoping that after all of that, you will understand and see or get a taste, a sense of God's graciousness. It's in verse 7, God's graciousness. Yet the Lord, Yahweh, was not willing to destroy the house of David. Isn't that interesting language? What does it mean that the house of David deserved? To be destroyed. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David that it justly deserved. Why? Because of the covenant that he had made with David and since he had promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. There's God's graciousness erupting. The reliable God, what the reliable God says, the reliable God does, he's faithful. And he's faithful. He's faithful to what he said and he's faithful to his people even when they're faithless. So notice here in Jehoram's life, it looks like all is lost. And we were down to one son. Jehoram dies and there's only one descendant of David left on all of the earth. And it's his son. It's getting thin, getting real thin. And this is going to happen again when, when Wes talks next week about his, his son or his grandson. It's going to get paper thin. It looks like all is lost. And yet, verse 7, this certain promise is quietly echoing in the background. God's, my friends, if it, if, let me just make it clear. God's graciousness is bigger than our societal evils. God's graciousness is bigger than our national immoralities. God's graciousness is bigger than your or my personal peccadilloes. God's graciousness is bigger and grander than any demonic devices employed. That's the point of verse 7. And as I said, notice that God's people don't deserve what God has promised, which shows us that God's graciousness is truly gracious. They don't deserve what He's going to do. And it will be important to keep this in the front of our minds because the next few generations, I think three if I counted correctly, in Second Chronicles are going to get a bit darker 
And it's going to get more squirrely and more rambunctious in the wrong direction. And this promise will be pulsing just under the surface. God's graciousness will still be pulsing and pumping through these historical events. And this promise, God's gracious promise, here, even here, will look impossible to keep. But then as this is being written in the middle of the 3rd century B.C., for those coming out of exile, it looks utterly impossible to keep. And so God's promise, God's gracious promise, will look impossible to keep and will surprise us when we see that God is not weak and God is not powerless, but He can bring His promise out of the impossible. He can bring His promise out of the impossible. Preacher, what are you talking about? Well, listen, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yahashua, Yahweh saves. You will call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's, God's, here's God keeping His promise and bringing His promise out of the impossible. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ who is the offspring of David. And can anyone take... Let me just ask you. Can anyone take the kingdom from Jesus? Thank you. God brings the promise out of the impossible. And that's what the writer wants them to start looking at as they look forward in the dark, impossible situations. And that's how we should leave this passage. God brings his promise out of the impossible. Let's pray. Well, Lord God, we are so grateful that you are the God who brings your promise out of the impossible. That means, Lord... Nothing and no one can stand in your way. And your promise that comes out of the impossible is a gracious promise. Lord, I pray for all of us that as we ponder Jehoram's life and as we ponder the lessons you want us to take, that yes, we may need to be convicted of some sin, but let us remember you have given the health-giving prescription Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If we run to you in humility and pray to you and seek your face, turning away from our wicked ways, you promise, even when it looks impossible, you promise that you stand ready to hear, ready to forgive, and ready to heal. And so we pray, Lord, that for all of us, we would run to you, even this very day. In Jesus' name, amen.